Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have another incredible episode, just like always. But I do have to warn you, my voice may not be 100% because, you know, it is the winter, and sometimes you're being so keyed that you sometimes come down with illnesses and your voice is not 100%. But, you know what, I'm going to carry on. I'm going to soldier on for the Greer heads out there, despite my vocal uh, hurdles that I'm having to deal with. So... We're still going to have an incredible episode, and we've had some great content over the weekend, I think, as most of you should know, but we'll go to uh, an epic tweet that uh, really angered a lot of people on the left because they didn't understand it. We'll talk about that later on in the episode, but the first topic we're going to talk about is obviously the border and what's going on there. The border is the number one issue primarily because of what's happening, what Texas is doing. And last week, Texas was ordered to remove, or not ordered to remove, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the federal government saying that they can remove this razor wire that they've put across the border and certain heavily uh, trafficked areas of the border uh, near the town of Eagle Pass in Texas. And now there's a whole battle over that. Now, it's important to note what the Supreme Court ruled. It did not rule that Texas must remove the razor wire, which is what everyone thought it meant. And when I read it, I thought that's what its original meaning was. But no, it instead ruled the feds can remove the razor wire. So <clears throat> when Abbott is saying, we're not going to remove this and we're keeping it up and we're putting more razor wire out there, it's not really quite in defiance of the Supreme Court. Even though I'm not saying it's the wrong move, I'm just saying that it's not quite the uh, Andrew Jackson moment where he's like, the Supreme Court has made its ruling, now now it's its job to enforce it. It's simply that they're still doing what they want to do, and the feds can go in there and remove this stuff. Now, the feds have not yet gone and removed it, but they probably will at some point. And I don't think, you know, this is not going to be a Fort Sumter moment where Texas National Guard square off against Border Patrol and they shoot them or something or get in a gun battle over the razor wire. I think what's going to happen is the Border Patrol just comes in, removes the razor wire, and then Border Patrol are... Texas National Guard then lays razor wire elsewhere. And that's pretty much going to how be most of the year is. Because the su- Supreme Court saying that the Texas cannot just, cannot lay the razor wire in the first place. It's simply just saying the feds can remove it. So that's something that, that has to be kept in mind. Because I don't know, conservatives really do think this is like a civil war moment. As they love imagining the civil war is upon us. And this is going to lead to secession. And you had 25 Republican uh, state governors, you know, stand with Texas. And they're like, this is this is a sign of national wars. This is a sign of resistance toward the federal government, which it's not exactly that. Uh, It is like a positive move because you do want, you know, Republican governors supporting Texas and its goal to enforce immigration law. But it's. And not quite the move that people think it is. So when we're always talking, and I think a lot of people on social media have been way too eager to think of this as the move. I mean, both left and right. Left was imagining 
that Biden needs to uh, deputize the National Guard and start shooting Texans. And then the you know right is like the states need to break away and form their own government to enforce immigration law and all this wild arguments going back and forth when in fact, you know, this isn't quite the moment. And neither, and I think both Abbott and the feds recognize that this is not quite the um, turning point in American history with what's going on. It's just simply that the government can do what it wants to do and the state government can do what it wants to do, but the state, but the federal government is still going to outweigh the state government when it comes to immigration law. Now, on the matter of Texas placing barriers there, I would say it's good. I don't know if you, you really can't quantify this stuff because we don't really have data on it, on whether it's dissuading more migrants from coming or whether it prevents them from entering the country. It's more about sending a signal to these people in Latin America where everyone, actually everyone in the freaking world is trying to come to America. I mean, from Asia, from Africa, from everywhere. Everyone's trying to come to America. They all come through Latin America. Now, if these migrants are under the impression that the state government of Texas is placing razor wire and racist National Guard on the border to to do terrible things to them, that might dissuade them from actually coming up. And so that's why I support a lot of these moves by barriers, because I don't think that they're actually that effective in preventing illegal crossings, because a lot of these guys, they could just like, okay, I can't get through here. I'll go through another place. And they've traveled so long from wherever they came from to get to northern Mexico that they're not going to be like, oh, there's razor wire here. I guess I'm going to go thousand miles or so, way more than a thousand miles, actually, <coughs> to go home. Sorry, we're going to be adding some coughs here. Sorry about that. I know I'm sick. Maybe I need to be put down. Uh, I'm not that sick. I just have a not the best voice today. But what's happening with so like they're not going to turn around and go home and Texas really can't deport them. But I think it's more about setting up these videos and having a lot of attention towards it. And it's it's really is about trying to convince these migrants not to come. And so if they see these dangerous paths they have to cross and then when they get there, it's going to be a pain in the ass to cross and you know, these evil racists in Texas, you don't know what they may do. That may convince some of them to stay home. And I think it's worth doing it. I think, you know, if Texas wants to do it, um, federal government is not really doing its job of enforcing these barriers or placing barriers there. So Texas should be able to do this. But the one the one complaint you could say that they maybe hurt immigration enforcement is that they take these Border Patrol guys that could be doing something else to then cutting razor wire or removing a, a border buoy that they had in the Rio Grande, which the border buoy may have actually worked to convince some of them because they're like, this is a death machine. All these migrants are getting trapped in it and killed. And that probably would have terrified some migrants if they're watching uh, the news. So some of this gets out, but otherwise they just spend time removing it. But I, I ultimately support Texas, what it's doing. I just don't think it's as... Important or as epic as a lot of the right imagines it, it is really theater for the right. It's the right wants to be perceived as doing something. And also the right wing base wants to imagine that we're heading to a civil war and a conflict and that we're about to have this grand resistance to the federal government and the states, 
you know, these state governors, you know, signing a joint uh, statement saying we stand with Texas really excites the base into wanting to believe what, um, you know, their fantasies of, of what can happen with the federal government or what can happen with the United States of America at this point. So everybody wants to believe that this is a much bigger deal than it is, which I'm going to have to add this, uh, you know, disclaimer every time is that I generally think this is a good thing. I think this is what the state should be doing, but it's not civil war because ultimately if the feds just come in and take the razor wire, Texas is not going to resist. They've done this before several times. I mean, it's more just like theater to give their base what they want to see and their base is getting what it wants. Granted, it does have the potential effect of dissuading migrants in Latin America from coming up, but at the same time, it's probably not the most effective use of border barriers, but it's better than what the federal government is doing. The federal government's doing very little. So, uh, but the, the more, more important point is that Texas is about to start doing something very serious about the border. That is genuinely serious. Is that they have passed a law saying that it's now illegal to enter the country, enter Texas from a foreign country illegally. It's now a crime that they can arrest you for in Texas. So what we're now, and they have been doing this to a certain extent before where they find illegals who are on private property and they arrest them for trespassing. Now, starting in March, they're going to be arresting them if they're just in the state of Texas and they're coming from Mexico. And they're going to start arresting. Now, that's going to be a real fight because federal government may say you can't arrest them and then try to free them, which is horrible optics for the Biden administration. It is horrible optics for the Biden administration to tear down this border barrier stuff, which further lowers Biden in the polls and makes him look like an idiot. It's like when they're saying come and take it, they do come and take the razor wire away, but it's making it seem that the Biden administration is actively de- is actively dedicated to ensuring that there are open borders at southern border and that there are no barriers to illegal entry. Now that will be further cemented if they try to free these illegal aliens that Texas is arresting. And so that is like a big step in the right direction if they're going to actually start enforcing the law and arresting these illegal migrants. Now, I don't know what's quite going to happen with that, but that's going to set up a huge battle. Most likely the Supreme Court is not going to rule in Texas's favor. Supreme Court has always um, been more on the side of that all immigration law enforcement is the federal government's job and the state governments are not supposed to have any activity in it. Uh, the five to four decision, uh, which was cemented by uh, Amy Coney Barrett, everyone's like, oh, based Amy Coney Barrett. She's awesome. The libs really hate her. And then it's like, you know, she has she has adopted Haitian kids. There's tons of Haitians coming to the border. You knew she was not going to vote for this stuff. You knew that she was going to be terrible about these issues. She cried over George Floyd. She talked about crying over George Floyd with her adopted Haitian kids. You you should have not trusted her, but everyone just ignored that and was like, oh, well, she's got lots of white kids, but um, people just chose to not believe what was right in front of them, and now they're seeing it, and she will definitely not vote. I mean, I would be very surprised if she voted to uphold Texas's law on arresting them. Could be a little bit different situation because maybe they could just say, look, it's a state law that we have and 
this isn't quite border enforcement. This is more about what we're doing in our own state. And maybe they can have a different argument there, but I'm a bit skeptical it'll be held up. But it's still a uh, more dramatic move in the right direction. And the fact that so many Republican governors are backing this decision about placing razor wire along the border indicates that a lot of these same Republican governors will then support Texas and its decision to arrest illegal migrants who come into the state. So that's something to look out for. Now, there is a downside to this because while this, um, you know, Civil War stalemate is happening, you know, the next Fort Sumter <clears throat> over immigration is happening. Greg Abbott is in India trying to bring more Indian migrants to the country. Truthfully, this is what he's doing. He went on a business trip and he was meeting with all these companies that have been involved in in getting H-1B visas uh, workers here. And he's trying to attract more Indians to Texas and he's touting all the great relations that Texas has with India. And he even did an interview with Tucker. He's like, speaking from India, it's like, what the fuck is Greg Abbott doing in India? And that's what he's doing. He's out there trying to get more Indian migrants to this. So it's like, okay, you're preventing, you're saying that like we're making the strongest stance against illegal immigration and we're, you know, totally defying the federal government. And this is what a red state of America would look like is that we would, uh, you know, place razor wire all over the border. By the same time, Red State America is then trying to beg for as many Indian migrants as possible. And probably you could argue that the Indian migrants that they're bringing over on H-1B visas and legally are uh, probably a bigger problem for America than the illegals coming through the border. You could make that argument. Um, Weighted, I I don't know if... um, you maybe say it equal. There's an argument for in favor of both cases, a strong argument in favor of each side on this. But it's still bad. It's still terrible optics. And it's saying like, okay, we'll play, we'll play theater saying we'll, we're the biggest border hawks and immigration hawks possible. And then in reality, they're, you know, business first Republicans going and, you know, getting on their knees for India. I mean, Abbott certainly can't get on his knees because he's in a wheelchair, but... If he could, he would be like, please, Mr. Modi, let me have all your Indian <laughs> IT workers. And uh, that's what they're doing. So it's like, what what the hell? And it's so funny because when you bring that news into it, it really deflates a lot of the Civil War rhetoric and the like, oh, we're going to have a second Confederacy. You know, I don't think the Confederates ever considered this type of move to uh, bring more Indians over. Um, I did want to reopen the African slave trade, which is a another issue but uh, I think they were more serious about this stuff when they fired on Fort Sumter it wasn't just theater it was they were being dead serious about this stuff uh while here it's you know it's like we're gonna fire on you at Fort Sumter and then Fort Sumter's like we're gonna fire on you and it's like oh we desist uh that would be a lot of what we're seeing at the border and then Jefferson Davis is like in another uh, country negotiating about how they're going to end slavery or something. I don't. It's hard to make a quite the analogy with the Confederacy, but it does undermine the claims that Red State of America would be an immigration hawk's dream. Because really, if these countries split off from America, and I've always made this argument too with like the secession and civil war stuff, it's like one, it's not going to happen. These states. Uh, I mean, I've repeated this all the time on my podcast. A lot of people are going to be sick of me saying this, but I'll just repeat this stuff. One, these states are heavily dependent on state government, on federal government, far more than they were in Civil War time. In Civil War time, you know, the main stuff that they have was dealing with the post office and import duties 
and military, which we had a very small military at the time, a very tiny military. And state militias were completely under control of the state government. And a lot of times they didn't really even see the military. Uh, so those were the, really the only things they had to worry about. Well, today it's like, you know, pretty much everything the state government spends on, they depend on federal government assistance from schools, roads, National Guard is has, you know, the federal government can easily deputize it and make it its own thing like they did during the fight over integration where the federal government would come in and say, we're taking over the National Guard. And back then, you know, the state governments had a lot more violence behind them from the people that they were siding with. You know, there were mobs of people that were on their side and so was the National Guard totally on their side. And still, even in that case, federal government was like, hey, we're taking it over and the state government stepped aside. Here, you know, when they're much more engaged in theater than they were during integration because, you know, the Little Rock stuff, uh, the fight over Ole Miss integrating, that wasn't theater. That was... Um, you know, those were full on full scale riots and they were fully preventing what they set out to do. And that's why the federal government had to send, you know, federal troops in to, with bayonets uh, fixed to stop uh, what the states were doing. But outside of that, that's just one scenario. I mean, so pretty much everything the state spends money on, it depends on federal government assistance. Uh, the states are much more part of a national economy than they probably were in the in the Civil War days, I mean, pretty much stuff that happens in Florida has impact everywhere else in the country. It's not like your your own little island in the country in the national economy. And these Republican governors are economy first. That's why Greg Abbott is out in India trying to lure more Indian migrants while pretending to be an immigration hawk on the border here. And so that's not really you know a part of this. And it's also you don't really have the type. People don't have state loyalties like they did in antebellum times. You know, people move around so much. I mean, everyone gets mad about this point, but it's like true. Americans move around all the time. They, you know, some data shows that Americans move at least 12 times throughout their lives. And usually it's all around the country. So people, you know, they might be living, and especially in Texas. A lot of these people have just been living there for a few years. You know, Texas has a pretty strong state identity, but... Uh, national identity is way more important than it was in the 1850s, 1860s. And also a lot of people's state identity is not really tied to right wing beliefs. I mean, Texas has, you know, tons of liberals and tons of foreigners in, in its midst and they don't really want to secede. You know, it's not like in the Civil War where, you know, you could get two thirds of the people or a strong majority of the people who are like, we're going to secede. And then, you know, you get a grudging acquiescence of the rest of the people. And then there'd be like five, depending on the state, like five to 10 percent of the population that was like strongly opposed. You know, here it'd be like 51, 49 percent. And that would not be uh, that's not really um grounds for a united force you know it's like a uh, lone star state of texas where you have all these shit libs in austin who are firmly opposed to secession and then just the various illegal immigrants and legal immigrants coming to the country who are also opposed to secession and texas then succeeds and then what it do, what does it do it then just brings over more indian migrants than the national government was bringing over before so that's another reason not to support it this is something not about the practicalities of it is that they, if, you know, we had a Red States of America, these guys would still be doing the same shit that they're doing now, but it would be in some ways worse. 
are in some ways more stupid. Like we would have textbooks saying that Martin Luther King was a Republican conservative and our economy depends on more uh, cheap labor from India. So I don't know why people are so excited for it. I mean, I think people would be very upset by the results if we did have a secession or a national divorce and then we ended up all in red states of America, red America, and then it it's even worse than what it was before and it's poorer too. I don't think people would be very happy with that. And I also don't think people have the, quite the capacity for violence that they did in uh, the Civil War or even the organization for it. I mean, outside the National Guard, I mean, you don't really have a effective force of resistance and people are like, well, we have tons of gun owners. Yeah, but these people aren't organized. They're just individuals. And a lot of these people are very uh, hostile to any type of formal organization too. And a lot of them don't have the type of military training or tactical training or leadership to really count on, which the South, you know, they got some of the best military leaders and thinkers in the country. They had these state militias formed up and a lot of the military left. And I don't think we would have that happening here <coughs> in in this uh, type of scenario. And just like the people in general, it's like people are like, well, the Taliban defeated America and so did the Viet Cong. But it's like, you're not the Taliban or the Viet Cong. You aren't living in the conditions that the Afghans were living in. You know, you're not the Taliban. You're a middle-aged man living in suburb suburbia. You are not quite the hardened gorilla that the Taliban were. And, you know, in a lot of ways, they militarily, the Taliban got their ass kicked. But they were able to hold on because the political, because America couldn't win over these these villager these villagers and tribes, and the Taliban were able to live in very harsh conditions and to survive while America was the occupying force. And a lot of times that just because and you know Afghanistan and Vietnam were both places where it made it very easy for guerrilla warfare to survive and partisans of that nature to survive, which. It's not quite the case for modern America. You're just imagining that all these like suburban Gen Xers are somehow going to be turned into hardened gorillas overnight over, uh, I, I don't even know, over Taylor Swift or something. And that's not quite the case. And they're going to be fighting for a red state of America that wants to bring in more Indian migrants. So I don't know if that's really what we want here. Uh, but continuing on, it's uh, there's more theater going on with the, the border. And that's what's happening with the Senate. Deal. The Senate's been working on a on a on a big package to to secure the border, and it was going to be done in exchange for Ukraine funding. And it looked like they were actually going to make serious concessions from or ring serious concessions from the Democrats. And it turns out they didn't. Pretty much what the deal does is that there are five thousand border encounters, and these are encounters, not just people who got away that they didn't encounter. If there are five thousand border encounters that the average is for a week. They then shut down the border and, you know, they claim to deport everyone that they catch, no matter if they're asylum claims or whatever. And then they try to lower that till 75% of what 5,000 is, which I think that would be 35,000, but <laughs> actually it'd be um, in between 35 or not 35,000, 3,500 and 4,000. I think it would be 3750. Uh, the math geniuses will correct me, but so it's around that figure. They have to lower it to that for them to open up the borders again 
And that's what it is. Now, if there's a one-day total of more than 8,500, 8, then they would shut down the border and implement these measures and deport more people. Um, things it doesn't do. It doesn't limit Biden's parole authority at all, which Biden has legalized. Um, there's estimates that he's legalized over a million people through parole powers or executive powers since he's been in office. And... Under parole powers that he introduced last year, which was supposed to reduce illegal immigration, which it didn't, they've been granting parole to 30,000 migrants per month from the countries of Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, and Haiti. And the funny thing is, this is supposed to dissuade illegal immigration, but all these migrants from these countries realize it's easier to get in the country just through the border and they're not going to be deported, so they just come through the border anyway. So it didn't dissuade them at all. Meanwhile, it's offering legal pathways to the ones who are a little less uh, impatient just to come in um, and it's, it's going to be very hard to get rid of them. So the parole, parole is still there. Restrictions on asylum only come into place when we're having more than 150,000 migrants per month because 5,000 per day average, that's 150,000 per month if it's 30 days. 31 days, it'd be a little bit, it'd be 155,000, but... So it only comes in effect then. And it's essentially saying we want our border figures this. We want to lower it to basically being under 150,000. But we're going to accept that we're going to have illegal immigration crossings of over 100,000. And for those who get in under before we start implementing these policies, you don't have to worry about being deported or having real enforcement against you. And so if you just come before they're starting to enforce immigration law, you can be welcomed in. And even after, you know, they start enforcing the stuff, you can still get in. A lot of these rules don't apply to family units, so you could just rent a kid and come all across and not have to worry about being deported. Or if you say you have serious humanitarian reasons, you can't be sent back, which all of them claim that there are serious humanitarian reasons, you can stay too. So it's... You know, there's so many exceptions that it can be proved that the law won't even be enforced. And Biden can continue handing out parole to whoever he wants and offering legal pathways to would-be illegals. So what do Republicans really get out of this? Well, they hand Biden a victory and say, We're, we will accept 100,000 illegal encounters per month. We're also going to accept him bringing in... Because it's not just uh, parole. There are also the CBB-1 applications. And there's been some other means that he's been using. And it can be, you can maybe consider there's like 50,000 or 70,000 would-be illegals who are coming in through the country every month. <coughs> and Republicans aren't going to accept that. But once it's 150,000 illegal encounters per month that are, you know, per month are... If the average is that's going to be leading up to the monthly total, we're going to then, you know, really restrict the border, but then allow in so many exceptions that it undermines the rule. So Republicans don't get shit here. And it, it's basically saying we're we're accepting a new normal. And you have to remember that how many migrants were coming under Trump. Under Trump, the usual monthly total was under 50,000. It was even like this for most of Obama's years. Uh, there were more months where it was over 50,000 under Obama than it was under Trump, but uh, it was still a problem. And even Jay Johnson, 
who was DHS secretary from a lot of Obama's tenure said, you know, if we're having like 4,000 migrants, ha- you know, encounters per day, that's a huge problem. Well, now we're having 10,000. <laughs> so it's uh, just imagine that. And we're much more under- and I think we're understaffed compared to the Obama years. And it never reached over a million uh, under Trump. Never reached a million. The highest total was in 2019, which it was around 800,000. That was yearly total. Under uh, under Biden, it's been over a million every year, and it's been over two million the last two years. And it's gonna be. It might be. <laughs> we might be lucky if it's just under two million this year. And there were just a few months under Trump where it was over a hundred thousand monthly encounters. The highest total was in May of 2019, which was like 132,000. And there were a few months, uh, warmer months in 2019, where it was over 100,000. It was like a big border crisis. But then they were deporting more of these illegals who are coming across the border. And that total is so low compared to what the, the average for Biden. And the average for Biden is like 200,000 per month. And... Anytime that they get over, under 150,000, they act like they won the Super Bowl. And so at the beginning of 2023, in January, February, they had implemented these new rules where they offered legal pathways to would-be illegals, and they felt that that was curtailing some of the numbers. And they got two months that were just under 130,000. And they were acting like, woo, we've solved the border problem. No border crisis here at all. This is a huge victory. So the highest total under Trump is considered a major win for border totals under Biden. Biden, it's been over 100,000 every month. I don't think there's ever been a month that it's been under 100,000. And most months, it's been over 150,000. I think now it may, since, you know, since the time where they had a brief, you know, drawdown of numbers at the beginning of 2023 it's been the we've had i think at least 15 months of over 200,000 probably more than that i might it might be 20 months of over 200,000 i mean in december we hit 300,000 and that's more than twice as high than the highest number under trump so now the goal is just to get the highest number under trump 132,000 and make that the goal for uh, for what we want for immigration. And even if you had that that total was the average for a year, that'd be well over a million illegal encounters. And you also have to remember is that hardly any of these people are getting deported. They're all getting catched and released. They're all we're all believing their asylum claims. They're claiming under this border bill that they'll speed up the asylum claims process. Uh, I'm skeptical of that as well. And really, it's just solidifying that Biden feels that having 200,000 plus encounters per month is politically problematic. And he wants Congress to implement mechanisms where they keep it over 100,000, but, un, you know, no more than 150,000, which it can keep it out of the public eye, it can run on this issue and deflate this issue for Republicans in the election year. And that's the sole goal, because... This is not really bringing down illegal immigration at all. It's just putting it to a manageable level, quote unquote, manageable level, where Biden doesn't have to worry about the issue for the election. And so Republicans, by agreeing to this deal, they're essentially handing a gift to Biden. 
and screwing over their own base and not actually solving the problem. And you and they want to say all these Republican senators are like we're not going to get a better deal under any Republican president. That's probably true, but guess what? We don't need to make a deal when we have a Republican president. The Republican president can just enforce immigration law, which Biden refuses to do. That's all that he has to do. Enforce immigration law. When you have catch and release, when you have us believing every asylum claim process, when you have the you know reckless use of parole authority, this is the type of mess we have. So we don't even need to make a deal. We just need a Republican president and there would be no need for this deal because we wouldn't even be having these high of numbers. And it's, you know, they're like, this is such a good deal. It's like under a Republican presidency, you hope you're not even getting close to 5,000 encounters per day. You're not getting close to that. And a Republican would just start enforcing immigration law as is. He doesn't need, to, he doesn't need congressional authority to do that. You know, that's part of his job. And essentially what Biden is saying is like, I'll start doing my job if you agree that we can have these many illegal immigrants come to our country. And Republicans just shouldn't agree to that. It's just handing a political gift to Biden to say, I've done something on immigration and it's taking away the most effective issue for Republicans in the midterms. And it's essential. And Republicans would essentially be saying we're OK with having over a million illegal immigrants come to our country every month and them not being facing any fear of deportation, which is what this deal signifies. The good news is that it has very little chance of passing. Uh, Mike Johnson says it's dead on arrival. House Speaker Trump is firmly opposed to it because he knows it's going to hurt him in the election. But it's even people are like, oh, this is they're just thinking about election year politics rather than what's good for our country. But the deal isn't good for our country. It, we should not accept these high of numbers. These numbers are are astronomically higher than any years in the past. And it's essentially just accepting them and accepting that we're going to have over a million illegal immigrants come to this country every year and we're not going to deport them. How is that real enforcement? And the real the real solution to this problem is getting a Republican in the White House and helping Biden diminish this issue and manage it and to run on like and pretending he actually solved this issue is hurting that chances of actually solving the problem because solving the problem is only going to is going to take a Republican as president and anything that gets in the way of helping a Republican win in November hurts our ability to enforce immigration law. So that is what's going on on the border. I think it is pretty sobering how the Republican Party is treating this issue is that, yes, we see, you know, Texas lay some razor wire. But at the same time, Texas is trying to lure in more Indian migrants. Yes, we see the, you know, Republicans say we're not going to give one cent for Ukraine until we get a border deal. And then their border deal plan enshrines the idea that we're enshrines the idea that we're going to have 100,000 illegals come to our country every month. But as long as it doesn't exceed 150,000, it's not a problem. And you really need to change this way of thinking on immigration. And hopefully President Trump can reshape the GOP and push it in a more positive direction. He has been doing that ever since he came down the escalator nine years ago now. And I think he will do more to push the GOP in the right direction, in a more America first direction, and a second term. And so the real solution to immigration is to vote for Trump in November and to hope he wins the election. And if he wins the election, 
the numbers will come down dramatically because most migrants will think that Trump is, they think that under Biden they have, there's an open border, which they're correct, but under Trump, they're probably going to think that it's not an open border and you're going to see the numbers come down and there's going to be changes to legal immigration as well. So that's the real solution to this. Congress is not going to reach a real solution and then complaining about how Republicans don't like the deal as what all these guys are doing. These senators are like these guys don't understand politics like they're they're ruining our country. That's not the way to sell your deal. And then they're saying these are just internet rumors. It's like this is confirmed by every reporter. Um, so that's what's happening. And But thankfully that deal will die. Now we got a lot of options for a second topic to t talk about before the IQ supplement. You know, we could talk about what's going on in Jordan with the three soldiers who were killed. American soldiers who were killed by Iran or Iranian proxies. That's what's been reported. But I don't really know that situation very well that's going on. I mean, as I tweeted out, it's like, question is, is what the hell are we doing in Jordan? That's a question to be asked. And there's going to be a lot of developments over that, about that for the next week. So we'll probably discuss this either in an IQ supplement or in next week's episode on what's going on in the Middle East. But the real topic, I think it's very timely because this is all emanating from what happened yesterday, is that we're going to have the Taylor Swift Super Bowl. And a lot of people are upset about this. A lot of NFL fans are upset about it. A lot of conservatives are very upset about it. But it is happening. Uh, people, uh, there's a lot of people who can't get, uh, really can't stand Taylor Swift. And there's good reasons for it. There's some good reasons for that. But I think uh, it might be a little overblown in some people's reactions. So despite uh, me changing the Greerhead Pledge to allow people to watch the NFL, it's like, you know, it might be a little bit going too far. People really hated this. I then see conservatives are now adopting the Greerhead Pledge, the original, to not watch the NFL. And these guys doing like 2015 alt-right style posts about the NFL, like bread and circuses, like this is an op to control your brains and stuff. And it's being done by like Benny Johnson and in wokeness. And it's not because the league has in racism in the end zone. It's not because the league has the black national anthem. Well, actually, there are some criticisms of it because Charlie Kirk was criticizing it, even though they've been playing the black national anthem for three years. I guess they just started noticing it. <coughs> so they have that. It's not over the fact that it's like 70% black and the culture around it is very much engaged in Afrolatry and all this stuff. It's just that they really hate Taylor Swift. And they're like, this is an op to control us. They're going to make Taylor Swift uh, campaign for Biden. It's all over. We're not watching the Super Bowl because of Taylor Swift. And a lot of NFL fans are doing this too because the normie NFL fans, there was a lot of memes being shared about how like Lamar Jackson is Batman who will save America from a Taylor Swift Super Bowl. Of course, Lamar Jackson choked and did not um, deliver the goods. He, surprise, surprise. And he lost, the, the Ravens lost the game. So, you know, he, um, we're having the Taylor Swift Super Bowl. So I'm going to go on to the conservative reaction to it. And I'm going to get my thoughts on it. It is actually very cringe that we're having the Taylor Swift Super Bowl. It is, it is too much. There is too much like celebrity news combined with sports. And it's going to lead to epic ratings. And, you know, Taylor Swift, Swift fandom is pretty cringe. 
And so I'm not the, it is actually pretty bad that we're going to have the Taylor Swift Super Bowl. And I do, I've always, you know, fans are always like, oh, these games are rigged. They're, and it's like so much money on the line. This time, I'm, this is like the only conspiracy theory I'm open up to. Because the NFL has a lot of interest in having the Taylor Swift Super Bowl. Now, there is a question of whether Taylor Swift will even be there. I think she's supposed to be on tour in Japan or something. But maybe she can fly back or delay a tour. I mean... They're going to be begging for her to be at the Super Bowl. I mean, what the end of the game they want is that the Chiefs win and Taylor Swift comes down on the field and they they embrace. That is really what they want for the Super Bowl. That's what the NFL wants, and they want that to be what America talks about for uh, the next several months. And they probably will get that. And so I, I think she still will find a way to be at the Super Bowl, even if she's on tour. Maybe not. I don't know. It's a long flight from Japan. So maybe it will be impossible, but they will try to make it the Taylor Swift Super Bowl no matter what. So that is bad. Now, why are I can understand why NFL fans are upset because it's allowing a bunch of young women who don't know the game and they're just obsessed with Taylor Swift. And they're like, I just want to focus on the game. I why Lamar, you let us down. And so they really want to focus. And so it's something like posers coming into their thing and ruining uh, what they their hobby. And I, I understand that from being in a metal and, you know, say, you know, there's some like reference to black metal or death metal and something. And that introduced a lot of people who shouldn't be listening to metal into the scene. You know, I understand that point. Even though the NFL is a much more broader, popular current than, you know, extreme metal music. It's still that, you know, it's taking away attention from the game and towards more this sideshow romance between Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. And they really are tired of sports coverage around it. They want some, they want focus back on the game. And it's been all year. It's like Taylor Swift of the game. That's all ESPN talks about. And it's... They're tired of all these new fans there. So I understand. But with conservatives, it's maybe uh, not as understandable. And conservatives are really upset about this. You know, and they they really hate Taylor Swift in a way that I don't, that has fundamentally changed from the last few years. I mean, if we go back to the mid-2010s, most of the 2010s, until she became an open Democratic supporter in 2018. She formally got into politics. She endorsed Marsha Blackburn's Democratic opponent in the 2018 Tennessee Senate race. She backed Biden. Uh, she's been uh, pro-choice and other means. She's become much more politically involved. But if you go back to the 2010s, like conservatives thought she was awesome because this is some wholesome. They wouldn't have said white, but she is white. Uh, it would have been implied she's a wholesome white pop star who doesn't have really vulgar lyrics, doesn't do drugs, doesn't have tattoos. You know, she's a fairly safe model, role model for young women. And as I argued in my article about Taylor Swift's white America, is that she's very popular among middle class white Americans because this is she makes inoffensive music. You can I don't think her music is particularly noteworthy. Like even though it's you know I'm not the target listener for this. I'm an old white man, uh, or middle, or I'm a white man in my thirties. I'm not the target audience for Taylor Swift's music. But even on that standard, you know, like by pop music standards, it doesn't really, you know, grab your attention in the way I think something like Madonna or Michael Jackson would have. Um, but it's very inoffensive music. It's music that a three-year-old can listen to, a 16-year-old can listen to, you know, 35-year-old and like a 75-year-old can listen to. 
and it has broad appeal to people, but it's particularly enjoyed by young women. Um, and by young women, this ages go from like 10 to 35. I mean, 35 year old women would still consider themselves young. And while there's probably been pop stars been much bigger and had a, you know, their music was much more ubiquitous and people were much more aware of their music in times past, like bringing up the Michael Jackson thing, I think the average American probably had a better knowledge of Thriller, the album, the entire album, than they do of Taylor Swift's biggest hits. Uh, and they probably couldn't escape it, you know. More people were listening to the radio, more people going and shopping around and just going around, and they would have just heard it all the time. And they would probably have been much more familiar with the music. But when the album sold million, tens of millions of copies, I think 70 million copies, you know, was it, that's worldwide, not just in America. But I think, you know, for American pop culture, uh, Michael Jackson would have probably had a much bigger influence. But I think the thing that's different is that Taylor Swift has a deep, connection with young women in a way that isn't comparable with any type of recent pop stars like most people who are like michael jackson it was just his music they're like oh I, he's got some great dance moves love beat it you know i, I love these songs they're catchy but that's about it but like taylor swift there's a type of she's our leader she's our cultural icon it's in a similar way that the maga base and this is on a cultural level it's a maga base with trump there's a deep emotional and deep connection with Trump among them that I think is comparable with a lot of young women the Swifties have with Taylor Swift. You know, she has gotten millions of young women into the NFL. That's huge cultural influence. And that's and also she exists at a time that we have fewer pop stars or fewer universal pop stars that everyone knows about because our culture is so much polarized and there's so many different options that you can be really into something and not be aware of larger cultural trends or what's the biggest pop hits. Like I, for you know, and I know a lot of people like this. I mean, I'm a little bit more unique, but I don't know what are the big pop hits right now. I couldn't tell you the big top 40 hits. I mean, I don't experience it. And there's a lot of Americans who are like this because, you know, I'm not listening to, you know, the radio like that. When I'm listening in, in the car, I listen to my own music. And, you know... The only way to really experience it is you're at a bar or, or a nightclub. But even at bars or nightclubs, they're usually playing oldies uh, with that. And, you know, most of the time I've been to a bars and stuff, the music they're playing is like stuff that like, hey, I remember this was big in college. Or this was even big when I was in elementary school if they're playing 90s stuff. You know, there's much more of you know, an oldies playlist that people are listening to, even for the mainstream radio, it's like harder to understand what's the top 40. <coughs> and I mean, if you're younger, if you're in like high school and college, I think you have a greater awareness of what's, you know, the big pop cultural trends. But I think it's much, things are just so much more niche now and, you know, sealed off from things that it's harder to be a universal pop culture or pop star in the way that Michael Jackson, Madonna, and others were in the 80s and you know, Whitney Houston, stuff like that. But Taylor Swift has managed to do that. And she's massive, massive cultural icon, especially for young women. And she influences them. I mean, I don't think there, you know, there's a new poll that came out that said a fifth of voters say that her endorsement of a candidate would matter to them. I don't think Michael Jackson could ever say at any point in time, like in 1984, you know, at the peak of his popularity, could have said uh, there would have been a poll saying a fifth of American voters 
care about who he endorses for president. They wouldn't have said that. They just enjoyed his music. But with by Taylor Swift, it's her lifestyle. It's what she's doing. It's her form of dress and aesthetics that a lot of young white women really want to idolize and live up to. Another, and as I said in my article, I wrote, you know, I guess I, I think I wrote it in November or December. It's from a few weeks ago about Taylor Swift's White America. You know, compare her to the other cultural options for young people. She's much better for young women. I, I don't know if young men should be listening to Taylor Swift, uh, but that's another story. But for young women, if you compare her to like other pop stars like Ariana Grande, Doja Cat, and all these others, you know, she's like a 1950s trad wife style, even though she doesn't have a husband or kids. And she's much better than rap, even though she's influenced by rap herself. She is, you know, a safe alternative, you know, alternative to what you have out there. I mean, no one's going to be offended by her music. No one's offended by her style. Like, she's not into drugs. She's not, you know, she has, you know, a serial dater, but she's not really, you know, her songs aren't about, like, being sexually promiscuous in a way that other pop stars' music is, or really vulgar sexuality. And then a lot of the music you hear on the radio is, like, now... And it's not that black influence. It's very white coated. And, you know, there's a, there's a wholesome quality to it, even though there may not be such a wholesome quality to Taylor Swift herself. But it also shows, in the article I argued, it shows that like middle class white America coming to terms with the new America. You know, it incorporates some rap influences. She does, you know, performances with rappers and she praises rappers. And she herself is like fully on board Team Blue and she's voting blue. She's not rejecting the new America that is very different from what her music portrays. But it's simply just coming to terms with and creating a safe cultural output in the new America. And that's what Taylor Swift represents. But for young women, I, I can imagine a lot worse things to happen. But it becomes a problem if she convinces all these young women and starts a campaign heavily for... Uh, Biden. But I'm not totally sold on why conservatives are being so upset about this because conservatives don't really have a cultural alternative. And generally what they offer a cultural alternative or it's really part of the new America, but it has an American flag over it. I mean, if you look at all the rappers like Tom McDonald, uh, Forgiato Blow, they now have a Gucci granny. They had, uh, I think it was the, the Latino rappers, MAGA rappers, introduced Gucci granny, which is a rapping gram, uh, MAGA supporting grandma in a wheelchair. Um, you know, that's the cultural alternative to, um, to Taylor Swift. I even, you know, and I'll go to this joke I made on Twitter, which liberals didn't understand, which I did this thing. It's like, you know, and I, I, I don't know if there were quite any of these tweets, but I can guarantee you that there were. Is the right is like, we need our own Taylor Swift for women to look up to. Because anytime there's like, we need a cultural alternative. Now, if I put like Brett Cooper or Riley Gaines or one of these uh, trad moms uh, figures in there, it would have been seen as a serious tweet. And people like, I fully agree. This is so true. But I decided to be honest and see what our big uh, female cultural figures are on the right. And I put... Uh, if you want a, a role model for young women to look up to, her name is Lauren Boebert. And uh, liberals thought I was serious, so they got um, uh, triggered by it. So it was a successful troll on my part. Um, but, you know, that's really what the alternative is. It's, you know, Lauren Boebert and Gucci Granny. 
that's like the real thing because conservative culture is much more lowbrow and appreciative lowbrow stuff. I mean, it's like, don't listen to Taylor Swift. Listen to this rapper with face tattoos rap about fuck Joe Biden. And it's like, I don't know if that's a real alternative or this hick hop song. It's much more of displaying the downscale Americans, uh, multiracial downscale Americans than what Taylor Swift represents, which is middle-class whites. And so I think a lot of the anger at Taylor Swift is the fact that young women are turning away from the right in large numbers, which some of it's, you know, you can't really help. Some of it's also driven by a lot of the abortion figures, you know, or the abortion laws Republicans are passing. Some of it's driven by, you know, women are more susceptible to media brainwashing and, and peer pressure than young men are. So there's a lot of anger in that and, that's reflected in the angry action to Taylor Swift. And it's also the fact that we're losing college-educated whites, middle-class whites, and there's an angry reaction towards that. And we, and our alternative is just to double down on being downscale. And you could have seen that with the Matt Gates claim where he's like, for every Karen we're losing, we're gaining a Jamal and a Julio. And when we say we're like, we don't need a Taylor Swift Karen, we have Jamal and Julio rapping about how they're voting for Trump in, in 2024 while they have face tattoos and they're using a lot of slurs and, and vulgar language and they're rapping along with Gucci granny. And like, this is, this is all our alternative to uh, the liberal mainstream culture. So when I, when I did that tweet, it was like a, to mock like the right because the right's always like, we'll have our own serious cultural alternative, which you, which they don't. I mean, Taylor Swift herself is used to be conservative coded just before 2018. I mean, the left hated her. They still hate her because she's too white. But they really hated her before 2018 because she didn't say anything about the 2016 election. They thought she was a secret conservative and conservatives generally rallied around her. But when she came out as liberal, they turned strongly against her. But at the same time, our cultural model, we don't have a better alternative to Taylor Swift for young women. And as I say, you know, I have, you know, complicated um, opinions on Taylor Swift. But if you're like a young 22 year old or college or whatever, I mean, I could imagine a lot worse things for a young woman to, you know, be into than Taylor Swift. I mean, compare this one thing. There's one positive thing about the Super Bowl, which the Kelsey Swift sideshow is going to be more important than the halftime show which is going to be all black music it's usher usher is like not that offensive compared to all their black music i mean every every millennial is uh familiar with yeah and all his other hits that song was huge in middle school speaking about cultural impact that yeah that song you could not escape uh that song when it came out like 2002 or 2003 that song was literally everywhere but um, that's like the, who's going to reform, but and still like more attention is going to be played to Kelsey and Swift, which I think is a little bit of a white pill that shows that middle America still wants to see celebrities that look like itself, that the people that they really want to be into are going to be whites that, you know, they may have been into Beyonce. They may have been into Jay-Z and some of these, you know, black athletes and stuff, but they really the storyline they love is a big jockey oaf of a NFL player dating the hot sing hot female singer 
the blonde blonde singer and this is what really gets their attention you know compare that to some of the kardashian relationships which i don't think people were really um that smitten with some of their choices <laughs> and who they picked for men you know it is more like oh you know uh, wanting to look at a car wreck of some sort of some of the relationship choices. While with Swift and Kelsey, it's a relationship that young white women want to see themselves in, that they want to see that they are dating a big, strong white guy as their, as their man. And there is uh, a degree of wholesomeness too to that relationship. And so I'm not as uh, down on it. Uh, I do think there are some people who are maybe coping a little bit too with white pills. If like they settle down and have kids that this will inspire a baby boom. Um, I don't think so, but it's still like a decent cultural event to happen for Taylor Swift to marry, a, you know, a jock, have kids and settle down. And that's still a decent thing. I think more, some women may decide like, Oh, you know what? Uh, I can't have it all. I need to have a, a family if I really want to have happiness in my life. And maybe Taylor Swift can set that. So who knows? But I do agree with conservatives that there is a there is something to be worried about that Taylor Swift may come out and fully campaign for Biden. I mean, Biden needs somebody to campaign for him. He can't campaign for himself. And he, she could wield her massive cultural influence to uh, push Biden into a second term. That would be very bad. I don't think she'll do that. I think she'll just say, I endorse Biden. I won't campaign for him. Worst case scenario is that uh, Kelsey and Swift get engaged and then they start campaigning for Biden, which would also signal that middle class whites are moving over to just Team Blue rather than Team Red. And then Team Red is just being left for this downscale, insane clown party mode, which is something that... I firmly oppose while meanwhile the nice respectable whites without face tattoos with um uh who are not like lauren bobert who are not uh single grandmas at 36 she's now 37 but she was a 36 when she became a both single and a grandma and who are not having a jerry springer episode every time they uh head out in public you know all the nice white people are then voting Democrats because they feel like this is a respectable thing to do. And that's a terrible development to have. And by having Swift and Kelsey as like the figureheads of what middle class white America is now doing and they're fully backing Biden, that signals a bad cultural moment for America. So that's a reason to still be critical of Taylor Swift and, and you know worry about what her potential impact may be. But I think when it comes to the Super Bowl and the NFL, this is one of the more harmless things about it. It's a little bit annoying. It is cringe in a way, especially if you're really into football. But conservatives now saying like bread and circuses just because of Taylor Swift. And it's like, look, I was arguing this stuff two years ago. And it's still a lot of the stuff I was arguing was very true. But it's like you do need to make concessions to the hoi polloi at some point. And there's a lot of worse things that the hoi polloi could be into than the NFL. You need to have, you know, tamp down on some of the enthusiasms that are associated with the NFL and what that may lead to. But I think the real problem with the NFL is not so much it's getting people into Taylor Swift. It's that it's getting people into uh, worshiping blacks and embracing Black Lives Matter 
and then being convinced that, oh, actually, we do have system systemic racism in our country, which is what all these NFL athletes were doing. And so the real time to complain about the NFL was in 2020 and 2021 when they were making all these big pronouncements, which now like the end racism thing in the end zone, it's kind of like, why is this here? They're not really making the political statements they once were. So it's not quite as bad now. I mean, it's worth remembering, but you know, conservatives returned to being the most avid, avid NFL fans in 2021 after it got woker. And now they're threatening to boycott again just because of Taylor Swift, which is not the reason to boycott. So I think there's a little bit of an overreaction. Um, and, you know, if they really want to work on a better role models for young women, they need to have better they need to have better people than Lauren Boebert, who Lauren Boebert, you may think of her as an outlier, but a lot of their biggest personalities on the right are a lot more like Boebert than people want to admit. I remember when she became a grandma, she announced she's becoming a Gigi. A lot of the right defended it and said, this is awesome. And she's going to have a much happier life than these childless uh, millennials, which in fact, her life is like a, a shit storm since like that and news and many others that have happened. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. But as the right turns more into the party, the downscale and downscale culture and values, more of our people are going to resemble Lauren Boebert and Jerry Springer episodes than we want to admit. And I think the hostility towards Taylor Swift and seeing her as like the worst aspect of America is, you know, an unintended, unintended signal of resentment towards college educated whites and middle class whites who are leaving the GOP and us being stuck with a more uh, less reputable segment of American society where more of our people resemble Boebert than they do Swift. Now, you could say there's problems with Swift, obviously. I mean, uh, but I think there's a lot more problems with Bobert than there is with Swift. So that's that's the note I would conclude on. I think conservatives are being a little bit melodramatic about uh, Taylor Swift in the Super Bowl. Uh, it's still going to be cringe, but cringe is a little bit different from terrible or horrible. And there are worse aspects of NFL and sports culture than Taylor Swift being into it. Uh, the real problem with her getting into the NFL is that it may lead to the unintended consequence of young women having another hobby that prevents them from developing families or building families or forming families. So we'll keep an eye on that. And that is the it for all our subjects. Now on to the kind of elite questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics. If you sign up for the kind of elite option at highly respected or it's highly dash respected Dot com and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So we'll start off with Appalachian because he has a topic or a question that deals with the first topic of our episode. Scott, after seeing the Supreme Court tell Texas they cannot defend their border, do you see other issues arising from the court during a future Trump presidency? Despite Trump appointing a large amount of them, it seems many of them are not on the same pages as him. I know judges are supposed to not be tied to party lines, but as activist judges become more and more left-leaning, can strict constructionist philosophy really keep up? How do you feel about judges taking right-leaning activist stances? You know, it's hard to, um, to know where they will align on. You know, they've 
people were worried that they were not going to vote against affirmative action. They all did. They're going to be really good when it comes to affirmative action and anti-white discrimination. I think when it comes to immigration enforcement, that's when it becomes iffy. Um, the real problem on that has always been has been Gorsuch, and he uh, he's been pretty terrible on these things. Kavanaugh's been a lot better. There's also some criminal cases. I remember there was one during the Trump years. I'm pretty sure this was during the Trump years where there was a guy who was definitely guilty of murder, but he said there was racism used in the jury pool. And Kavanaugh ruled in favor of this guy. There's also the problems that Gorsuch has done with the Indian reservations, which is actually really bad. Gorsuch is worse than Amy Coney Barrett, but he's all over the place. He's good on free speech. He's good on affirmative action stuff. They're pretty much all are good on affirmative action. John Roberts, the one iffy on that. Uh, so it's hard to say. I think, you know, it was like this in the Trump admin. They weren't very good when it came to mail-in ballots. You know, Supreme Court essentially ruled in favor of the rigging by saying all these loose mail-in ballot rules, they're acceptable. And that's what hurt Trump in 2020. And they're also not really that trustworthy on immigration enforcement, as we can see with the latest Texas ruling and elsewhere. But a lot of people are always like, we can't trust the judges. We can't trust the courts. But they still deliver positive results for us. As is probably more positive results than the legislative branch does, and it still offers opportunities. It's just not guaranteed. I mean, we got rid of affirmative action, and now we're able to really go after a lot of these practices, both in universities and businesses, because of that. And also, the courts have upheld uh, serious immigration law enforcement under under Biden, and even a little bit under Trump. So you just gotta keep appointing uh, the best judges you can. Hope you do need a bit of a better vetting process. I think the one issue with Federalist Society is that they don't really vet these guys on immigration and the identity issues, and that needs to be more taken into consideration when they're vetting these guys because they generally just vet them on originalism and their support for business friendly regulations and laws, uh, and also pro life. Uh, that's probably the one social issue that they really assess on. But now I think that you really need to assess them on identity issues. And they need that scrutiny. So a lot of these judges are also kind of risk averse and they, you know, they're very much a part of the elites. And I do think a lot of them are worried about getting ostracized if they vote wrong or if they do things. But even though they were facing a lot of harassment, both on the street and probably within their social circles over what they were going to do with Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade they still voted to overturn it, which there's not been the best consequences for Republicans afterwards, but at least showed the Supreme Court had the backbone to take, these conservative judges, judges at least had the backbone to take hard decisions. And that was followed up with, again, with them voting to strike down affirmative action a year later. So... There are things to look out for, but, you know, they're not guaranteed. I think with the difference between conservative and liberal judges, liberal judges, you can be certain what they're going to vote for. Conservative judges, you're not so certain. I mean, Trump pointed out, he's like, you know, liberal judges, you know what they're going to vote for. But conservative judges are worried about being uh, above it all and, and not partisan, while liberal judges don't give a shit about that. You do need a little bit more of an activist attitude for these judges when they get appointed to these positions. Now a question from John. John asks, will upper middle class whites 
expatriating accelerate our demographic decline. I see becoming become becoming more common. Cost of living increasing in the U.S. Increased atomization, political polarization. More and more people we need are going to opt out of America. I don't know if it'll be enough to actually accelerate our demographic decline. Um, more of them are doing that, but that was particularly during COVID. A lot of them are coming back. It's. And also maybe some of the places they're going to aren't uh, don't want them or, you know, maybe they're not as they're becoming less affordable than they were before. So I this is it's hard to, to graph where this is. I think this is primarily happening among people who would not be forming families, even if they were in America. That's making it harder for them to form families, obviously. But I think it's more that they're just doing this for a few years and then they get a new job and they have to come back. And a lot of offices are insisting on you coming back to the office. So these guys may be working, you know, remote work jobs from Mexico City or Argentina or wherever or Croatia. But eventually their jobs will change. They'll miss home. They're not learning the local language and they'll move on there. I don't know what effect it will have on demographics. I think there's just so many other problems with our demographics that this is such a... And I'm using this not in a, like a critical way, but it's just a way of gauging how many people are involved in this. I would just say this is an insignificant part of the population that we have so other bigger problems with this that I don't know if this is really our major concern with demographic decline or with some of these people who are doing this. I think if these people were here in America, I don't know if they'd be forming families in the first place. So that would be my question to that. I think that's something worth more looking into and seeing what may turn out there. But now we're going to move on to K-Max questions. K-Max has got, let's count them up. I think he's just got two questions today. If he has more, I know he will email me, but I'm only seeing two from K-Max. So... His first question is, Scott, who would be Trump's smartest pick for his vice president this time? Some have speculated he loses too much with suburban moms and so the vote with women is weak. Would you recommend a Christy Nome type pick or who would you be who would you who would be your short list of good VP picks or Trump, a top two or three? I think his smartest picks realistic are JD Vance and Vivek. I think he needs to avoid I I, I really actually just say JD Vance. People are saying Lee Zeldin. I am a little bit worried Zeldin's a little bit too much of a hawk <laughs> for that. Zeldin would probably be better than some of these women that they're talking about. Gnome is just too stupid to be VP pick. I would still vote for Trump uh, no matter who he picks. He's not going to pick Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley said he's guilty of rape. That's that. that I'm thankful she said that, but... I don't think Trump was serious about it, but the fact that Nikki Haley said that is like, you know, they asked her, is like, do you agree with his defamation trial? And she's like, yes, I do. So Nikki Haley is not going to be the pick. Stefanik has a lot of problems. So if I had to put for the best possible realistic, Tucker's not going to be picked. Uh, I don't even think Vivek will be picked. Uh, of the people he's talked about, I think he just needs to get a man. And the man is like a more moderate version of Trump. And the best option there is J.D. Vance. So I don't know if he would pick him. I feel like Zeldin might be more 
realistic. But there are problems with Zeldin, obviously. But, uh, I mean, there's problems with all of them. I mean, even Vance, there's problems with. But I think compared to the other choices, you know, he, he's just got to go with he's got. Vivek would be interesting. It'd be a fun campaign. It'd be an exciting campaign. But I don't think he's going to pick Vivek. Uh, he'll, he'll give Vivek a cabinet position when he becomes president. But I don't think he'll pick him for VP. So I think his, my advice to Trump is to pick a man and to make sure that he's uh, pretty solid. Uh, there's some other candidates that could be also picked if he wants to go to with a man. He could go with the uh, Bill Haggerty, who's a Tennessee senator, who's a you know respected by the establishment, not really uh, you know a, f- a firebrand or anything, but he's very solid on immigration. Uh, also, Marsha Blackburn's a, a, an option. I probably prefer Haggerty or Vance to them. Haggerty, I think, might just be settled for Secretary of State. But I, I think if it had to be a woman, I don't know who I'd pick. Noam is probably the least politically offensive. And I don't think Trump would want her as his successor in 2028. It would not endorse her. I do worry that if it's Stefanik, I have to say, if it's going to be a woman, it's either going to be Stefanik or Gnome. And those are the two most realistic choices. Stefanik, I'm worried he would endorse her, and having her as a successor to Trump would be terrible. So if I had, if it had to be shortlist for women, I would just be fine with Gnome. Gnome just like is just a pretty face to just strut around and. She doesn't really challenge Trump. She just defends Trump record. And then when he's done running for president or what he's done with his term in 2028, he just lets it have an open primary and no one would not win an open primary. So uh, I would say that's my opinion on his VP picks. All right. So go along with that's his first question. Let's go to a second question. His second question is, Scott, what interview will happen with VDR? I read recently that thanks to Letitia James and her use of lawfare, VDR wrote that they could run out of money this year's website. Do you know if there's any hope to reverse or fight back against this? The left uses lawfare, lawfare to an extraordinary degree, and this is part of why you argue there's the let left all drop out uh, against the let's all drop out and all be welders. Scott, Stephen Miller's America First Legal and more right-wing lawyers is what is needed to fight back for VDARE for Trump. I don't know what quite's going to happen to him. I mean, the solution for them is they just need, you know, it is legal help. I mean, they, they're they putting out these appeals. I mean, it is a very tough situation. They're putting out appeals because, you know, it is draining them of a lot of money. They are under investigation. New York AG knows what she's doing. She's, you know, VDARE is not a major nonprofit. You know, it's a... You know, it's a, like most right-wing groups, you know, it's a very uh, low-scale operation in compared to like the major-scale operations of Heritage or something else. And she's trying, to, and Letitia James is trying to drag on this investigative process to make them lose a lot of their money in, in the legal battle and the legal wrangling over this. So really what they just need is more money to get the lawyers they need help. Uh, but with the battle... You know, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I know it's a very difficult situation. I don't think it's hopeless. Uh, I think they're if they get the legal help they need and the support they need, I think they've got a really good fighting chance against this case. And 
I do know they've had a few successes um, with this case, um, but it, it's still very dark that a fact that uh, AG can just come down hard on a group just because she doesn't like the political beliefs. And that's what Letitia James is doing. So yeah, it's uh, it's always going back to the thing. It's like, you know, the real solution to this is to have the resources and the people to fend off these attacks. And if you all just drop out and don't and give up these resources, when you have these difficult situations arise, you don't have the help you need. And this happened a lot with the alt-right is the alt-right, you know, when they were getting into these bad legal circumstances, they, one, couldn't afford lawyers and they couldn't find lawyers to help them out. And then they all got screwed in a lot of these court cases that happened. And I, thankfully with VDARE, they've had resources and legal help to aid them in this battle. And that's what gives them a fighting chance in court. So that'd be my answer to that. So I think that I'm going to double check to make sure that is all of KMAX questions that is all of his questions we'll even check we'll even make sure that none of them went to spam okay he we have got kmax down so that we love kmax's questions he's always very eager to ask a lot so we want to make sure we've got all of them so we'll now go on to we've got a few more we'll go to the next john we'll go to john chandler who he says, curious to hear your thoughts regarding the bet between academic agent and R.M. McIntyre. Do you agree with AA that wokeness will be put away or rolled back as it benefits the regime? Or do you agree with, if I understand him correctly, McIntyre, that the woke is here to stay and will continue to worsen? As I am understanding it, I tend to agree with McIntyre, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Um, You know, there could be a damper on wokeness. I've seen their back and forth on the bet. Um, I don't know how either both sides could just say that they won uh, with this bet because there's not a really objective way to measure this. But I think a degree of wokeness is here to stay unless we have a major social revolution. And the regime, you know, I think some of the examples that academic agent uses is there'll be like an ad with mostly white guys, a military ad with mostly white guys. And it's like, oh, they're putting the wokeness away. But instead... They still have DEI training in the military, so wokeness is there. I think you have to really realize this. It's not just like ad marketing that's wokeness. A lot of this is built into the regime through civil rights law and others. And as long as that's there, it's here to stay. So I'd probably agree more with McIntyre, but I think academic agent will just say that like, well, they're dampening some of the wokeness. You know, they're not highlighting these trans drone operators anymore. And I think they will tamp down on some of the excesses. And you've seen this. Uh, I think this year, this year's Pride Month will be the first one since the Bud Lighting, and or after the Bud Lighting. And I think this year's Pride Month may be less excessive because I think they corporations realize the lesson from Bud Light is that they can do Pride Month, but they can't do it excessively unless they alienate conservative consumers. And that's what happened with Bud Light is that, you know, they can't have a trans influencer making satanic shirts like they did for Target or they can't have a trans influencer, they can't make beer cans with a trans influencer's face on it like they did with Bud Light. But they can put like out just a generic tweet saying like, we celebrate Pride Month 
and their stores can sell like specialty rainbow flag coffee cups or something, you know, <coughs> but they can't do it in excess. So that'd be my answer. I, I would say I'm probably more on are on side on that. Uh, but I haven't fully focused on the debate. I just see snippets on the back and forth on Twitter. So I can't. Uh, but from what I understand it, I'd probably be more with Aron on that. So we've got Dollar Bill. He's got two questions for us. He says, when Nikki Haley drops out, do you think she could endorse Biden's purely out of spite? No, she'll endorse Trump. <clears throat> you know, if, if DeSantis endorsed Trump, she will endorse Trump. She wants a future in the political in the Republican Party. She has her eyes on running in 2028. Her political future depends on endorsing Trump. She will she will definitely even if for some reason she decided not to endorse Trump, she will never endorse Biden. She's not going to go full over. She's not going the like full David French into the Democratic side. I, I was wrong last week. I said like she would drop out if she lost by double digits in uh, New Hampshire. She still in it. Uh, I mean, she, I guess she's just waiting to lose by 30 points in South Carolina. But I mean, the primary is effectively over. And so that's my answer to that. And second question is, will you ever do an IQ supplement on Obama? In your episode on LBJ, you called his presidency a transformative one. And I feel Obama's was just as impactful and sharply pivoting the country to the left on social issues. When Obama was running for president in 2008, he cited his beliefs as a Christian as the basis for him supporting marriage remaining between a man and a woman. Fast forward to the present day and his own running mate says children should be able to change their gender at any age. Yes, I will do an IQ supplement on Obama. There needs to be a really good biography of him that covers his presidency. And there really hasn't been one out. I mean, a lot of this I could just do an IQ supplement on my own memory from Obama, but it's good to read this stuff to refresh it and be like, oh, I forgot about this aspect. Oh, you know, are fully spelling out this issue. So I always promise to do IQ supplements on everything, and I haven't gotten around to a lot of them, but Obama is definitely high up there on who I will do an IQ supplement on because it's a very important subject. And I think a lot of people, you know, we have a lot of younger people now, and also people forget about stuff, and it's worth remembering the Obama years. And how much America transformed during that time. So absolutely we'll do that. So I think we don't have any New England refugee questions today. Not that I know. So I think this is the last question. This is from Tom. He says, Dear Scott, what do you think the continuing trend of layoffs in news media will do to the mainstream narrative? It's nice to see liberal journals crying, but a downsizing of the industry doesn't necessarily mean a weakening of the mainstream narrative. Major outlets will survive and people in the managerial class will continue to be part of their audience. I think it's good for us, but I'm skeptical that it will have a radical effect on the mainstream narrative. On a positive note, a lot of liberal <laughs> journalists won't be able to be full-time activists anymore. No, I think it's positive. And it's, of course, not going to change the mainstream narrative, but... Downsizing media means they're not going to be able to whip up the type of derangement, Trump derangement syndrome that they were able to do during the Trump years. There's a massive expansion of media during the Trump years. Like he was incredible for business. But now that they're laying off all these journalists and they can't afford them, they're not going to be able to whip up the hysteria against Trump that they were able to do in 
the 2010s and hysteria against the right in general. I think that they were hiring like dozens of people just to cover the alt-right and to dox people and to harass people for being hosted on certain platforms. And so I think this is going to be all around good for us. There's obviously it won't change what the type of narrative they want to draw, but it also changes their effectiveness in whipping up that narrative. And it helps us to, you know, produce content and to gain ground without having to worry about the media coming down on us and trying to deplatform us, debank us, and to whip up hysteria against us. So I would say it's mostly pretty much all, all a positive note. Both you get the enjoyment of seeing these uh, liberal journalists unemployed and there is a tangible benefit for us in how we want to operate in America and how we can envision our goal succeeding. And I always go back to this point with, uh, you know, I don't think that the left can whip up Trump derangement syndrome in the same way that they did in the 2010s. And this is one of the factors in it is that they don't have as many reporters as they did. They don't have the type of media uh, environment that they, that they did in 2017. And that's definitely to the rights benefit. So that is it for today's Highly Respected. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it and hopefully you guys didn't mind my voice that much. I had to take a lot of breaks from this recording the podcast because of my coughing, but it's okay. We're going to be back 100% next week and probably within with the IQ supplement later this week. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.